Ephesians 3, I want to read some of these verses to you, beginning with verse 7. It says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace, given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which was for ages past kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was now that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. And I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. As Paul is writing this passage out, he's indicating that the church is now the focal point of history. God's purpose is going to be carried out through the church of Jesus Christ, and Paul's making it known that the church of Christ is very important to our Lord. You are very important to our Lord. The ministry of Elam Baptist Church in this community is very important to our Lord. But think about it. It was miraculous when God created the heavens and the earth. And it was a wonder when God created rational human beings who could either respond to him and follow him or actually even rebel against him. But it was probably beyond comprehension for anyone to realize that God at some point in Christ took the step of beginning to wound a sinner back to himself in Christ Jesus and he poured out unlimited love on the sinner or as some refer to it as the rebel and then he helped that rebel to become one person of love and obedience so that God could take all of them together and create a new people called the Church of Jesus Christ who would live and work in such a relationship together, showing forth the love and forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ that others would be drawn into the kingdom and become a part of that church. God worked in your life and in my life and continues to work in your life and mine. He keeps instructing us. He keeps discipling us. He keeps guiding us so that his love will flow through us and so his forgiveness will be expressed through us and his justice and mercy will be made visible throughout the world that you and I walk in every day. So Paul is interested in that church and Paul wants to see that church being alive and Paul wants to see that church moving forward in its community and he deals with that church in the whole book of Ephesians and we don't have time to take that whole book of Ephesians but I want to take just this passage because we see some things that Paul wants the church to do as it reaches out to the community around it first of all in verse 8 Paul says, I'm starting this out now, and I'm going to set an example because I'm going to start teaching about the unsearchable riches of Christ. And one of the things a church has to do is to keep sharing those unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, what are they? Paul's been talking about them in chapters 1 and 2, and that's a whole other message. But let me just share a few things. He says, we have been chosen in Christ. 
He says, we have a redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ and we're brought into a living relationship with God because that blood has been, sh been shed. We are reconciled to Almighty God. Think about it. And that means we have access to him at any time and our, our, our conversion or our salvation is actually sealed by the Holy Spirit. So we have a membership, a lifetime membership in the kingdom of Almighty God. However, the word you want to pick up on that and some of the other things you want to go back and read in those first two chapters is that word unsearchable. Unsearchable means it's infinite. Unsearchable means it's inexhaustible. Unsearchable means it's without limits. In other words, the wealth of Christ, Paul is saying, doesn't have an end to it. Get into a relationship with Christ and he's going to be pouring out his love. He's going to be pouring out his leadership. He's going to be pouring out his power. He's going to be pouring out all of the forgiveness you need. That's the way he works, and it's for eternity. Paul says, preach that message as the church. Well, then in verse 9, he says he wants to reveal a mystery. And he's going to reveal, in other words, a great secret. But we see that in verse 6, if you go back to it. He's basically saying the love and the mercy and the grace of God were not meant only for the Jews, but you're going to see now from this point on, they're meant for the Gentiles as well. And what Paul is saying there is when it comes to my church, all the barriers have to go. All the divisions are going to be resolved. The gulfs are going to be bridged. Back in that day, it meant that the proud separatist Jew who had nothing to do with the Gentiles and couldn't care less about the Gentiles, that proud Jew who woke up in the morning and prayed for three things, basically, prayed, first of all, that he wasn't a Gentile, secondly, that he wasn't a woman, and he prayed, thirdly, that he was not a slave, and thank God for that, and that man is going to actually come into the hostile teachings and thinking of the Gentiles, but they're going to be brought together in the person of Jesus Christ because Christ is the Prince of Peace, because Christ is the one who alone can bring men and women together, and his church is not going to leave anybody out. His church is not going to push anyone away. His church is going to be a welcoming family bringing together people who normally probably would never get together. And the church is going to be a demonstration of how the barriers and the hatreds and the suspicions that normally divide humanity can be broken down. But there's a third thing. He also says that the manifold wisdom in verse 10, the manifold wisdom of God is going to be made known. And I wonder if you notice how large the audience is there. It includes, it says, the heavenly hosts. Now I want you to think about this. Evidently, there are things the angels and the heavenly hosts don't know. They are created beings like we are created beings. But they have no concept of the hatreds or the bitterness that we have here with mankind. They don't know what it is to be forgiven. They've never had to be forgiven. They don't know what it's like to be graciously reconciled to God. And what Paul is saying here is God wants them to see him in those capacities. Otherwise, their knowledge of him is going to be deficient. So he says the church 
is going to be very important to the heavenly host because the church is going to be a living illustration of the remarkable working of God in all of those respects. And he says it's a manifold ministry they're going to be watching as well. They're not only going to see how we're forgiven. They're not only going to see how we're going to be changed. They're not only going to see how our relationship with God is going to grow and all those things they know nothing about on their own, but they're also going to watch us with the manifold working of Almighty God. Now, that means many colored. It's like Joseph's coat. If you were to go to Greece today, many times you'd see that word manifold flowers, manifold carpets, manifold cloth, and so forth. That means that store, if there's a sign outside like that, has many, many colors of all of their styles of carpets or cloth or whatever. When you get over to 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 10, Peter talks about the manifold grace of God, which explains the different ways that God equips his people to do his work. So what he's saying here is the manifold wisdom of God is going to be made known through you and through me, through this church as well as every other church that is meeting somewhere this morning. And that means that as we go out and do our work and as we go out and share in the community and as we go out and just be God's people before our families or whatever it is, we're, those that are outside of Christ are going to see God working through us in a manifold way. He's going to see all the different ways God reaches people, all the different ways God touches people, all the different ways God works and reaches various cultures, all the different ways that God is going to bring people to reconciliation together, all the ways God equips his people for service and empowers them to work and all the wisdom of God is going to come into his church and never be exhausted. In other words, the church is going to demonstrate how varied and how great the wisdom of God is, not only to the heavenly realms, but to the world around it. Now, if you're going to be a church like that, then we need to realize we've got to be on the offensive. And oftentimes the church is on the defensive. And we're just kind of making it from week to week. And we're just kind of showing up from week to week. And we're just kind of hanging in there from week to week. And, and Paul is saying, no, 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 no. The church is going to be on the offensive. The church is going to be moving in whatever community it's in. The church is going to be making a difference. This is how God's working. This is how God's going to do what he's going to do in the last days. It's all going to happen through the church. Now, if that's going to be happening, and if it's going to be on the offensive, then I think there's some things we have to think about that are basics but are very important to us, and we need to review them, at least I do, from time to time in our lives. And one of the basics, I think, is to get back to understanding the power and the majesty of Almighty God. When the angel came to Mary and told her that she was going to have a son, and no man was going to be involved, it was going to be the work of the Holy Spirit, and it was going to be very, very special. And then when the angel went to Elizabeth and told her as well, an older, barren woman, you're going to have a child, who we now know was John, you're going to have a child as well. 
when the angel completed the message, it says, because with God, nothing is impossible. With that thought in mind, I go back to Exodus 3 and 4. When you get back there, you've got the story of Moses and the burning bush. God is telling Moses that he's a chosen instrument. God is telling Moses that he has seen the misery of his people in Egypt, so he's going to send his people out of Egypt in the days ahead. And when God is telling Moses that he's going to be part of all that, and he's telling him that he's going to send Moses to Pharaoh to bring the Israelites out of Egypt, Moses right away says, no, 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 no. That's not me. That's not who I am. And he begins to make up all kinds of excuses, and he responds as if everything is going to depend on him. What he didn't hear in God's message is the message that came into chapter 3 and verse 8, where God said this, Moses, I have come down to rescue my people from the Egyptians and to bring them up to a land that flows with milk and honey and to stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with wonders so that they will be favorably disposed to you leaving the country and not only favorably disposed, wanting to get rid of you, they will send you out with the supplies and the food and so forth you need as you go. In other words, it wasn't Moses who was going to lead the people or the children of Israel out of Egypt with the help of God. What he was telling him is was it was going to be God who was going to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt with the help of Moses. And we have a problem with that. We don't realize that. We don't understand that. We don't see how great our God is. When I go from church to church to church, it's amazing how I, I hear the churches always talking about all the things they cannot do rather than all the things God can do. And we ought to be alert to what God can do. We ought to be alert to the power and the majesty of God. And we need to take him at his word again. And we need to rest in his ability to work through us. Basic number one, remember the power and the majesty of God. Second basic, Jesus Christ is Lord. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, it says, Therefore God exalted him, Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Sometimes we hear people talking about making Jesus Lord. The passage does not say Jesus ought to be Lord. The passage doesn't say he should be the Lord. The passage says he is the Lord. That's already decided. And all of creation, it goes on to say, is going to have to deal with the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. But the wonderful thing is, you and I can come to terms with that now and begin to live out our lives being touched by the power and the majesty of our Lord. What does it mean that Jesus is Lord? It means he's the, he has the last word. It means he has the authority to determine what is right and what is wrong. It means he's the one who ought to rule our choices. 
And he is the one who has the right to determine even the circumstances in our lives. Now, let's put that in a personal way. And, and one of the ways I do that is to make it very personal for myself. Um, let me take you through my journey and what I go through sometimes as I evaluate, am I letting Jesus Christ be Lord in my life? I am a pastor, and if you ask, what does a pastor do? Most people would say, well, he's called to preach. He's to preach, he's to teach. The truth of the matter is, that's the easiest part of what I do. In fact, that is probably the most fun part of what I do. I cannot believe, after doing it over 40 years, that you still will pay me to study the Bible. It is unbelievable that that happens and that I have the privilege of doing that. But you also have to know I've got orders in this Bible just like you do. And one of the passages I have to read from time to time is in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And when I get to that passage, I find that God's giving me direction and giving me the kind of input I ought to have. And I've got to remember that he is Lord and he has the right to call all of those shots. And when I get to verse 2, it says, I'm to take time to train reliable men even after Sunday. It is the position I'm in that means I have to train people to know how to live out a life for Christ. In verse 3, it says, I'm to endure hardship like a good soldier. In verse 5, it says, I'm to be ready to play by the rules of God. In verse 6, it says, I'm going to endure everything for the sake of the elect. In verse 15, it says, I'm going to be a workman that ought not to be ashamed. In verses 16 and 23, it says, I'm to stay out of foolish and stupid arguments. In verse 24, it says, I'm to be kind to everyone and never resentful. How would you like to be a pastor? And I have to go through that from time to time and evaluate myself. Is Jesus Christ Lord of my life in those areas? Chuck Colson has said in one of his books, the greatest challenge facing the church today is to reassert the lordship of Christ. And if Christ's lordship does not disrupt our own lordship, then the reality of our, of our conversion must be questioned. Think about it in this way. Jesus Christ is willing to commit himself totally to you. He's willing to walk with you, to share with you every second of your life. He is going to take you to eternity. He is going to go through every burden, every frustration. He is going to totally commit himself to you. How are you going to commit yourself to his lordship? There's a third basic, love for God. We know that God loves us because the scripture tells us that over and over again. 1 John 4, 9 and 10 says, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. In John 17, 23, it says, God loves us even as, listen to this, even as he loves his own son. That means Jesus loves you 
in the same way. I mean, that means God loves you in the same way that he loves Jesus, his son. And that love is infinite, and that love is eternal, and that love is perfect, and that love is without limits. Now, the question is, do we love him? When Jesus was asked to sum up the commandments, he came back and he said, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And so we've got to ask the question, do we? And if you do, if that's how you love him, have you told him so lately? Have you thanked him for that love recently? How often do you do that? Have you shown any love to him. One day I was driving in a car with another man and he says, how do we show God that we love him? It's very interesting. John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. I said, we show our love for him. We can't hug him. We can't kiss him. We can't bow down before him. But we show him our love by obeying what he has asked us to do. And John in these passages is letting us know that there is only one test of love, it's obedience. And Jesus was obedient in every way with his Father. It was obedience that Jesus showed his love for the Father. And it's our obedience that shows how much we love our God. Jesus never allowed love to devolve into sentiment or emotion. And he knew that if we were really going to love God that way and love others, that it was not going to be easy for us. And that's why he said he sent the Holy Spirit because you and I are going to need a helper to do that who will guide us in what we are to do and then will give us the strength enabling us to do it. When I was in junior high, and in my very early year, years in the high school, we lived with my grandmother. And my grandmother was a disciplinarian. And as uh, soon as I moved in the house, she had a fine young man there, and he was going to be used. She gave me chores. And I loved that woman. But she gave me chores. And she told me very clearly, when I came home from school, I would look at a certain list in a certain place, and it would be there every day, and it would have one, two, or three items for me, and I would get those things done, and then I could go out and do whatever I wanted to do. Chores. I used to hate that word. Chores. I used to walk home from school, and i think, oh, I wonder what it'll be today. The interesting thing is, I left home, and left home fairly early, and got into college, and started going to school, and oh, I thought... This is freedom, no chores. And that was a big thing when I walked out of that house that day with a suitcase in hand heading for college. No chores, no more. So I go on to college and I go on to seminary and in my last year of seminary, I meet a young woman. And I didn't plan for this and I didn't expect this and I didn't intend this, but she swept me off my feet. So just a very few days after I got out of seminary, we got married. Six months into our marriage, on a Saturday morning, I'm walking back to the alley with a bag of garbage in my hand, 
and I'm all of a sudden waking up, I'm doing chores. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. How did I get to this? And I'm going to wash the windows when I get back to the house, and I'm going to wash the car. And I thought, I am doing chores. But I never realized it because, because I was in love. And let me tell you, those chores didn't get any better. You should have seen some of the diapers I saw as, <laughs> as time went on. But you see, because I was in love, I didn't look at those things as chores. Now the question is this, are you really in love with Jesus? If not, first of all, you might be hurting this morning. And you might be a little bit guilty this morning. And if you're serving him, it might be a little mechanical this morning. And if it's only out of having to be obedient, it might be even done sometimes in fear. But if you really love God, you serve him gladly. Now, there's a mystery to it all. The mystery is this. God invites me to share with others his amazing love. And he works through me as I do it to touch others as I reach out in love. But the amazing thing is this. Somehow, you and I, when we reach out in love, ultimately benefit from doing that. Dallas Willard puts it very well in one of his books. He talks about the remarkable expression of love. And he says, I want to share with you the full account of the movements of love in your life and mine. We are loved by one who loves us eternally. And so in turn, we love him back. And when we love him back, we also reach out and love others through him. Who in turn, those others, love us. And it's a full circle of love. It's a relentless love because we love him. And when we love him, we're just going to reach out to love others. And when we love others, they're going to respond to that love and they're going to ultimately love us back. And we get back more love than probably what we give out. It's a relentless love that goes on and on and on and brings something tremendous to every one of our lives. Are you grateful that God sought you out and came into your life? Are you glad that he rescued you from sin? Are you overwhelmed that he chose you to be one of his followers? Are you excited about the presence of God in your life and what that brings to you and the guidance and direction it brings? Are you considering daily how to be more aware of that direction? Are you loving him more than you did a few years ago? And if you're loving him more than a few years ago, are you seeing that love kind of pour out on others, spill out on others? If, it, if you are, you're getting love back amazing love back let's look at a fourth basic characteristic faith faith is acting on who god is second corinthians 5 7 says we're to live by faith and not by sight whenever i think of faith i go back to a story that was told by dr roland bingham a man i've met a man I've been with, but a man whose role in mission circles was known several years ago. Dr. Roland Bingham 
was the president of the Sudan Interior Mission. And he was also a very well-known Bible teacher and a strong teacher, and he would often go out and speak in Bible conferences and that type of thing. And one morning when he was in his office, he received, and you can tell this is before email, he received a cable from Nigeria. And there was a cable that said, we have a great opportunity to advance the gospel. Please send 10,000 immediately. And they had a list of how they would spend it out there. And when he got this cable, it was the day after they had paid all their monthly bills and there was no money left to come up with $10,000. Now, Nigeria had been closed and the missionaries were being taken out of that country left and right for years. But a new regime came in and they lifted all the bands and they had a wonderful time, a wonderful window to get in there and to distribute new materials and to go into some of those churches and get them opened again and get them refurbished again and begin to do some witnessing again and sharing and handing out Bibles and doing all kinds of things. And back then they could do all of that and they had tremendous lists for just $10,000. Bingham knew he didn't have the money. So he had an office staff of only nine or 10 people, but he called them all together and he said, we want to pray about this because the need is immediate and we want to help them do what they have to do before things change. So they prayed about it and after they prayed about it, he went off because he had to speak that night in another city and he actually was taking a train that day to that city and, and uh, he went over to the train station, got on the train and while he was on the train, he's thinking the whole time, how am I going to get $10,000? He was wondering if he could stop some of the checks he mailed out the day before. He was wondering if he could contact some people and who would be those people and how would he ask them to meet this need. He was thinking about all kinds of ways the whole trip, wondering and worrying about how he could get this $10,000. He gets to Toronto where he was going to speak at the church in Toronto. And he speaks that night, and when he's done speaking, they bring a couple up to him that he knew. And the couple said, you're going home with us tonight, and they take him home. He's having some dessert. They're sharing together, and the man says, could we have a word of prayer before we go to, to bed? And he asks for Bingham to share a request, and Bingham tells him about the $10,000. And when Bingham was through telling him about the $10,000, the man very quietly, because he was a very quiet man, simply said, we've been saving some money and we'd love to do that. We'll give you the $10,000. And Bingham says, the whole amount? And they said, yes, we'll give you the $10,000. Well, he could hardly sleep that night. He was so filled with joy and he just, he was just unbelievable to him that this would happen so fast, and it would come in this direction. So he gets up in the morning, and he gets on the train, and he heads back to the office. And as he's getting back to the office, he's just still rejoicing, and he can't wait to get back there and tell his staff what has happened. And he tells them, and he says, no, i got to go in and write a cable out so we can send it on and tell Nigeria it's on the way. He sits down to write the cable. And he said, 
I wasn't into that cable very long when the Lord spoke to me, and he said, you know what it's like, he told the seminary students. He said, God just speaks very quietly. And he said, God put that quiet thought into my mind. And he says, I'm writing away, and God puts into my mind, Bingham, why are you so happy? And he said, I put down my pen, and I said, Lord, my prayer was answered, and so quickly, $10,000 all in one gift. And Lord, who would have thought that those people would give me that gift? And he begins to write some more. And he said, God spoke to me again. Bingham, do you have the money? He said, no, Lord, I don't have the money. But the man promised that he would send me the money. The man promised that he would, he would send it out today. He would go to the bank this morning, and we're going to have it. We're going to have it right away. He won't delay it. And so he starts to write more on his cable to spell out the story to the missionaries and as he is, all of a sudden a thought comes, Bingham, all you have is that man's promise? All you have is his promise and you're sending a cable? And he says, yeah, Lord, but he's, he's probably got the check in the mail already. I, I know the man. I know he's going to do it. I know he's going to take care of it. And he says, then the thought came, Bingham, isn't it strange Yesterday when you were on that train, you had all of my promises. And you had the one that said I would supply every need and you weren't very happy about it. Now you got the promise of a man, Bingham, and you're out of your mind. And he said it was the greatest rebuke he had ever had, but the greatest challenge to faith that he ever had when God spoke to him in the quiet of that office. Do you trust people more than you trust God? Do you trust the ways of the world more than you trust God? Where is your faith, Bingham? What's going on? And what's going on with us? Well, I wanted to get into discipleship, but I'm out of time. So let's just think in terms of when Jesus Christ asked us to go into the world to reach others. He didn't say, I want you to save as many people as possible. He never used those terms. He said, I want you to go out and make disciples. And let me tell you just one brief story that allows you to understand what I'm talking about. Several years ago, Joan and I decided to reach out to people we knew. We didn't know them well, but we knew them, family, doctor, and all those kind of people. And we brought them, we invited them to our home, and we invited them to study with us some of the basics of the faith. We studied things like, how can you know God in a personal way? How can you read the Bible and understand it? How can you communicate with God? How does God's spirit work in a person's life? How do you walk in obedience with God? How do you work within the family of God? How do you share your faith with others? And we invited them to a three-month session, meeting one night a week, and we went into all the basics like repentance and submission and commitment and perseverance and service and family life and knowing God's will. The interesting thing is when we got done, all of them, about a dozen, a little over a dozen, had come to know Jesus Christ 
and committed their lives to the Lord. When we got to the end of those three months of sessions, they said, we've got to know more. You've got to teach us more. You've got to train us more. And I said, okay, but we'll bump this night on another night, and we'll begin with your friends on Tuesday nights, two weeks from now. Two weeks later, we opened our door, and in came another dozen people. We gave them Bibles, and we couldn't tell them, turn to John, we'd have to say, turn to page 949. None of them were Christians. And we went through all of these same truths with them, and they all became Christians. And they sent another group, and they sent another group, and that went on for years. And they all committed their lives to Jesus Christ. And when we hear from them now, they're still committed. They were made disciples. They were not just made Christians who thought if they would just recognize that Jesus was alive and ask him for forgiveness, that they would be part of his kingdom. We made disciples. And the interesting thing is, they had, once they knew what the commitment was all about, they had no fear of becoming part of the church of Jesus Christ. I think we've got to get back to that. I think we've got to get back to making disciples, following what Jesus said, and helping people understand what's really involved. It's not only grace, but there's... There's work involved in following Jesus. And, and there's work in just developing our own lives as we closely walk with him. But in his grace and in his love and in his forgiveness, he's so patient with us and he just develops us in Christ Jesus. And I think we have to get back to that as well. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this gospel message that Paul's made so clear in the scriptures. We thank you for the basics of what we're involved in. We thank you for what it brings into our lives. We thank you for the purpose it gives us. We thank you for the challenge it gives us. God, help us not to just lead this life half-heartedly, bored to death. But may it, Lord, become alive in each one of us and alive in us as a church fellowship, that we might really make a difference in the time period we live and in the area we live in. In Jesus' name, amen.